Hey, what is up, everyone? Welcome to the Crack House Chronicles. I am Donnie, your host, and with me is a man that says, with all the crap going on in the world, no one gives a shit about Chevy Truck Month. It's Dale. <laughs> uh, okay. Yep. <laughs> oh, Lord. I'm a Dodge man, so. <laughs> yeah, you are a Dodge man. I'm a Chevy man, so. It's still I, funny. I don't care what you say. Yeah, I mean, I, I give a shit about Chevy Truck Month. Oh, do you? Oh, yeah. Oh, Lord. I mean, you gotta have, you gotta you gotta have priorities, man. You gotta give a shit about something, don't you? Yep, that's right. All right, dude. What's going on, Day Bud? Oh, same old, same old, man. How about yourself? I'm great. Feeling good. We're ready to do an episode, Bud. Yeah, we've been grinding them out, haven't we? Yep. I want to remind everybody to check out the website, check out our store page, get you a T-shirt, get you a mug, sticker, some kind of merch. Leave some money in the donation button. Do all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, go to Apple Podcast and leave us a five-star rating and review. Yeah, shout out to Caitlin for dropping that five-star. Appreciate that. Absolutely. Appreciate Angie Williams. Yes, sir. Yep. She messaged us today. She was actually in town close to us today. She's from Texas. Yeah. We are originally from Gas House, I think. But yeah. Lives in Texas now. Yep. But uh, that long sleeve shirt was looking good, wasn't it? Yep. Yep. Man. We'll try to get that picture posted on our website. Most definitely. And give her a little credit for... Supporting the crack house. Yeah, she always does. Yep. All right, Dale, we're going to get into our episode this week, man. All right, man. What's going on this week? This is a little something different than we normally do. You know, we're doing, we do disappearances. We do serial killers and murders and different things. But this is a murder, but it's a little bit different. This is the story of Betty Broderick. And she was born Elizabeth Ann Beseglia. In 1947. I'm glad you tackled that one. Yeah, I got it. (laughs) And she was born in Bronxville, New York. She was the third of six children born to devout Roman Catholic parents. Her mama's name was Marita, and her dad's name was Frank. And her last name, like I said, was uh, Basiglia. And they owned a successful plastering company Yep. uh, with uh, other relatives. Yeah, I think his dad actually started that business and then when he come in and took it over yeah and her mother was irish american and her father was italian american hmm. now her family she was like i said the third of six children they were pretty strict parents yep and which was pretty much expected of all their their kids i think yeah they was pretty strict catholic right yep yeah and betty even recalled later in life that she was pretty much being trained as a young child to be a housewife. Yep. Yeah, early on. Yep. She would go, she recalled she would go to Catholic schools and she was told to be careful with dating until you find a Catholic man. Right. And support him while he works. Be blessed in later years with beautiful grandchildren. Yeah, so basically they were just pushing her for family life. Yep. Which is important in that culture, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. I mean, she was allowed to go to school and go to college and stuff but and get an education, but... Um, that was, I guess, for her benefit. But, yeah. but she was being, you know, conditioned to be a, a housewife and mother. Yeah, programmed, I think, is what she said. Yeah, programmed. Being programmed. Now, their Catholic upbringing was pretty much bolstered by the booming American economy back in the 50s when, you know, parents could reasonably expect a man to, you know, could support the household. Well, yeah, and then plus they always had big families, so... You know, like she like she was uh, one of six, so, 
you know, mom needs to stay home and take care of the kids mm-hmm. and do all the a lot of housework. That's a that's a job in itself. And the man would go to work and come home. Yeah, he was he would make enough to support the family. I mean, we're looking that's leave it to beaver type family. That's what they were. Yes, yeah, pretty much exactly. Yeah. Now, Betty Broderick, which uh, at the time she was still Betty Baseglia. She graduated from Maria Regina High School in 1965. And she later attended and graduated from the College of Mount St. Vincent. Right. And it was in the Bronx. That was an all-girls school, right? Yep. Yep. And that's where she earned a degree in early childhood education through an accelerated program. And her credits also earned her a minor in English. So, yeah. So, she she ain't stupid. No, she got an education. That's for sure. Yep. Definitely. Yep. Now, Betty... She met her future husband, Dan Broderick, at a Notre Dame football game when she was 17 years old. Yeah, this was the first time that her parents had ever given her permission to go to something like this. Yep, and she was actually allowed to travel uh, out of town Mm -hmm. with her friends. Which was a big deal, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Back in in those days, yeah. And Betty instantly fell in love with him. And he had handed her a napkin with his name on it. Daniel T. Broderick III. MDA. MDA. <laughs> what does that stand for? Yep. And what does that stand for? Uh, medical doctor. Almost. Almost. <laughs> so, yeah, that was like, oh, I'm in love. Yeah. Yeah. Mr. Smooth there. Yeah. I mean, he, was, he seemed like he was very full of himself. Yeah, I think so. Even yeah. though he was like a tall, langly dude and, you know, I don't know, not very athletic looking, I guess. But And she was she was about six foot tall herself, though. She was taller than him. Yeah. But he was in medical school. Yes. And like I said, Betty instantly fell in love with him. And, and he was a Notre Dame pre-med senior from Pennsylvania. And over the next three years, they dated. Yes. Uh, traveling back and forth to her home from Cornell Medical College where he attended and continuously seen her. And he sometimes brought her with him up to Pittsburgh to visit with a large Irish family he had. And both attended college and both had big dreams and both were clean-cut kids and they both were Catholic. Right. So they fit the bill. And it was even reported, too, that they loved the same song by Johnny Mathis, Until the Twelfth of Never. Hmm. So they Betty pretty much seen their relationship was made in heaven. Only Johnny Mathis song I know is Christmas songs. Yeah, but this was another <laughs> Johnny Mathis song. Okay. Yep. And they dated for a year and a half. And they got married on April the 12th, 1969 at the Immaculate Conception Church in Tuckahoe, New York. Tuckahoe. Now, that's a name, ain't it? Tuckahoe. <laughs> yep. They went on their honeymoon in the Bahamas. Yep. And I've, I've seen different things where it was reported they stayed with somebody there. And they stayed part of the time with somebody, and then they had a place of their own. Well, I don't know if they stayed with somebody, but I think it was at least it was somebody's house that they knew. Okay, that's what I that's the way I put it. Now. Okay, so I don't know if those folks were there as well. It's it just not really it's not really clear. Mm-hmm. But they were there, and some stuff was going down. Yeah, they consummated their wedding vows on their honeymoon. Yes. Yeah, and Betty came back pregnant. Yep. They came back from their honeymoon, and a few months later, she found out she was pregnant. Yeah, and from what she said, that was her, her first time anyway. Yeah. So, and she was pregnant with her first child, and it was a daughter. Her name was Kim, and she was born in 1970. 
Now, Dale, during this time, life wasn't easy for the Brodericks. No. Uh, Dan was still learning to be a doctor, and Betty revealed that at that time they had nothing. Mm-mm. Not a diaper or a shirt or nowhere even to let the baby sleep. Right. And they actually let, let the baby sleep in a dresser drawer. Right. I guess would line it with blankets and mm-hmm. let the baby sleep there. Do what you got to do. And she even said her mother had sacks on Fifth Avenue deliver clothing essentials to him. Well, you know, when they got back after they got married, they moved into his dorm room. So, Which, you know, that wasn't really allowed, was it? No, because it was a single. So I don't know how long they actually got to stay. Mm-hmm. And then after that's when they moved into a little makeshift, whatever it was. Yeah. But Dan likes a small, uh, a little small Boston flat. Yep. And, you know, Dan still being in school, Betty was forced to earn money by babysitting for another couple. Yeah. Even caring for their own newborn to support yeah. the family. So she was taking some care of somebody else's kid and her own kid. Now, in July of 1971, Dan applied to Harvard to study law. Yeah, because uh, right after he got, as soon as he got, he, he completed his, uh, his MD degree, and then he decided he didn't really want to be a doctor. He wasn't satisfied with that. <laughs> and she was like, you know, dude, I didn't put you through school working my butt off. I've been busting my butt. And you changing degrees and wanting to do something different. Can you, I mean, yeah. Can't even give it a shot. <laughs> no, huh? But he wanted to go to law school. Yep. So so he enrolled in Harvard. Yep. So the dude's pretty smart. Yeah. I mean, it's not a small task to do what he's trying to do. But it, his plan was to specialize in medical malpractice field. Right. And the couple moved to Somerville, Massachusetts. And Betty was pregnant for a second time. And they were economically strapped and... And Dan out just going to school and her still having to work three and four jobs to support them. Right. And on July of 1971, they had a daughter, Lee. And Betty also became pregnant with their third child, who this child died at birth. I've uh, seen it two different ways, so it's still not clear. I don't know. There's a lot of different stuff. One one reported that it was born, stillborn, and another one said it was born and then lived for four days. Mm-hmm. So... Now, during all this time, Dan, her husband, he devoted himself full-time to his studies while Betty was doing odd jobs, paying the rent and for their Boston flat and even keeping the family in food. And yes, yes, Be- she's doing everything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Betty could also seen, be seen going door-to-door in her neighborhood selling Avon or Tupperware. Yep. And with two children bundled under her arms. So she was busting her ass. Yeah. While he didn't, she took all the pressure she could off of him so he could, you know, work on his studies and she was really supporting him. Yeah. And on the flip side of this, Dan maintained that image of an all important factor of, you know, becoming a wannabe lawyer. So he'd clothe themselves and, you know, just nice clothes and, you know, making himself look really good. Yep. And it was even reported that Betty and the kids would wear secondhand clothes. Yeah. Just. Whatever they could get. Yeah, I guess Goodwill at the time, whatever Goodwill was. Right. Salvation Army stuff. Just to be able to let Dan maintain that that level. Keep his nickname of Dapper Dan. Dapper Dan. You're Dapper Dan, man? Me? No, I'm not Dapper Dan, man. I don't use that pomade. (laughs) Now, in early 1973, the Brodericks moved again, and this time they went west to California. Yeah, he had got him a job. Yep, and it was a summer clerkship in Los Angeles. 
And this was on the advice of an attorney friend that Dan had a legal position with in San Diego where he wanted to be. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was wanting to be a bigger fish in a smaller pond, pretty much what he was wanting to do. Right. And with that degree in medicine and law, Dan was a catch to a lot of legal firms and soon accepted a position as a junior partner with Kerry Gray in San Diego. Yeah, pretty big law firm. Yep, and he was he was climbing the ladder, the, the ladder of, you know, making money. Oh, yeah. When Dan got his job, they celebrated by dropping their first down payment on a beautiful home in Coral Reef neighborhood here in California. But the money didn't pour in real quick. No. And to help supplement their income, Betty taught religious classes at a local school, and in 1979, she received a real estate license. And it was five years before Dan finally began to earn enough money that she could stay at home and from do what? I was going to say, so there's five more years where she's busting her ass. Busting her butt. Taking care of all the kids and doing all the housework while he's just being dapper Dan. Yep. But Dan would go on to make a lot of money. And from the first day they were married until the the year Dan's income first hit one million, Betty was never too proud or too lazy to work twice as hard as most women could or even would. Right. She showed that already. Yeah. So she was busting her butt. Yeah. But Dan became obsessed with not only his work, but integrating himself in the social life. And he saw that, you know, he needed to network with other people. Definitely. Yep. He would um, often go after work to bars and social places where other lawyers were hanging out just to to get that contact. Rub elbows. Yeah. Drink. (laughs) And through all this stuff, he's still wearing those expensive name brand clothes while she was wearing the discount store stuff yep and uh, she didn't even have a washer and dryer and betty was taking the kids and the clothes to the laundromat mm-hmm. damn so yeah so i'm sure he was getting his stuff dry clean <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. and about this time in 1976 they had a son named danny jr and then later in 1979 they had a son named red yep and she was continually supporting her husband, Dan, when he chose to leave offices in, of Carrie and Gray in 1978. And this was to venture out into his own law practice. Right. He, was going, he had networked enough and come up with, a, I think, a couple friends that helped him out and get started in a, to, do, to do his own law practice. Yeah. And I think this was actually one of Betty's ideas for him to do that. I think so, too. Yep. And she even uh, helped him decorate his new office and sat with him to help him figure out the right right decor yep mm-hmm. and make it look like a law, a law office right and at this time it seemed like to betty that dan not away from what she called drinking buddies but he would become more the husband that she had hoped for and he would work late at the office but come home immediately afterwards to share the day's professional events you know talking about how work was you know about clients and different things you know so it seemed like to betty that this time in their life things were normal it's finally hitting where she wanted to be yeah yeah he didn't need to be networking as much as or whatever he called it, going out and drinking as much and he would work and come home like she wanted yeah yeah and his new law practice took off yeah he was making a lot of money yeah even enough to hire her a maid to help around the house and do a lot of stuff and then they got into country clubs and some other stuff like that and give her time to be able to do some things around. she could actually be somebody now yeah yeah but according to Betty, their marriage began to dissolve. 
Mm. And she began to feel second place to his career. And she noticed that his career, well, she noticed that her interest in her had waned a little bit. Mm. And it was one time on a family vacation, they got in a fight. And he spent more time in the hotel bar than with her and the children. So, you know, she seemed like, you know, most families' problems would stem from the lack of money. Theirs right. seemed to stem from the she having just, money. She just can't win, can she? No. But she's doing everything she can think of to, to make it right. And she said Dan constantly berated her for purchases of furniture and clothing and, and money that she claimed that she had earned as a real estate agent. And in turn, he never failed to drop in an investment in property or on a wardrobe that he claimed needed as a man for his profession. Right. So, so he just blow it on whatever he wanted and yell at her for anything she did. Yeah. She could, anything, if she wanted to buy something that money she had earned, he'd give her hell for it. Right. Yeah. Now, Dan's business was really growing and he exchanged his eyeglasses for contacts. He had his hair layered. He even had a little minor uh, plastic surgery. Had a nose job, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah change the shape of his nose yeah but uh, betty's interest remained more at home and on her children but dan's interest remained on his business and getting wealthy and i think he had a, a nickname at that time what yeah. was it? it was uh count do money <laughs> yeah he, he was raking in the money yeah yeah his uh his business had really taken off he was he was really bringing in the big big change count do money Count do money. money. Yep. And <laughs> and by 1983, Dan had pretty much found something else to add to his riches. He found another woman. Mm. Yep. Yeah, I think uh, at one point they were at uh, one of these uh, social events, and he made a comment to somebody that some young lady walked by and said, man, isn't she beautiful? And I think Betty heard that and didn't, she didn't care too much. She was taken that. back by it a little bit. because like, whoa. She had never even even thought of him having an eye for anybody else exactly yeah but dan first laid eyes on this blonde her name was linda coquina and it was a party that was given by lawyer friends in early 1983 and like dale said betty overheard him telling one of his buddies isn't she beautiful mm-hmm. so yeah and at the time linda was a former airline stewardess but was now a freelance receptionist for another attorney. But she had no paralegal, nor experience in medical malpractice insurance, and she couldn't even type. No, and she'd been uh, fired from her airline job for being a little extra friendly to, I think, some of the the passengers. (laughs) Yeah. So was she inducting them into the Mile High Club? I don't know. That it's rumored. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's some of the rumors going around. Yeah. Now, Linda was only 21 years old when she met Dan. Right. And she was born to a hard-working class, well, actually middle-class family from Salt Lake City, Utah. And she had a high school education and worked, like we said, for Delta Airlines. But she didn't have any kind of experience in any office. No, none at all. She didn't know how to type at all. And that was a big deal then. That was really the... Basically, the only skill you really needed to have. Yeah, there weren't, weren't any computers, so you had to type. Right. But she had she didn't have any experience well, sure, with that stuff. Sure, she had some skills, but it wasn't nothing to do with that. Yeah, Dan, <laughs> Dan learned them skills pretty quick. But Betty was suspicious from the start and you know, kind of played it cool. You know, 
that she might have had just a case of paranoia. And her friends kept telling her that, you know, Dan wasn't the kind of guy that would cheat on her. Yeah, it was eating her. Yep. And it was uh, one instance when they vacationed in New York City. This was in the summer of 83. Betty caught Dan hidden away in an alcove in the hotel lobby, calling Linda mm-hmm. over the phone. It's probably when they had the, all the, <laughs> the pay phones lined yeah. up on the wall. Phone booths, yeah. Yeah. And then it was another time when they went to England. Um, she discovered Dan had telegraphed flowers to Linda. Mm. He's just a good boss. You think that's what it is? Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. But Dan, in turn, grew more and more irritated by Betty's badgering about his assistant. I guess, I mean, she had a right to be badgering him. It doesn't look good for Dan. No, uh-uh. Even, even if nothing's going on, it, it surely doesn't look good. And she'd even went to, to Dan telling her, telling him that she needed to fire her. Yeah. She needed to go. But Dan wouldn't get rid of her. He just told her she's crazy. Nothing going on. And it was one instance when, I think it was Dan's 39th birthday, Dale, she just showed up at his office. I think she had some champagne or wine or... And a dozen roses. Yeah. And... Well, she she didn't go up there a lot, so, and he had missed her birthday, you know, um, I don't know, a couple of weeks before, and she just got to thinking, well, maybe it was good, maybe I need to go up there and his thirty ninth birthday and surprise him at, at the office, and we can turn things around. Yeah. So she shows up, like I said, with her with her champagne and a dozen roses and walks in the office and a positive attitude. Yeah. Yeah, she's going to try to make make things work. Everything's gonna be great. But Dan wasn't there. Mm-mm. Secretary, I said, uh, can I help you? <laughs> it's like, well, I'm looking for my husband. And, well, yeah. <laughs> he's not here. No, he left with the assistant yeah. earlier in the day. Yep. And I don't know when they'll be back. Yep. And she went in Dan's office, and it looked like it had been a a little small party in there. Mm-hmm. Small. Yeah. A little, there was a cake there and some wine glasses. The secretary there asked if you know if she could take a message for her or something. You know, said she's going to wait. Right, and said she ended up going to peek in uh, Linda's office too. And that's when she saw a portrait of Dan hanging over uh, hanging over the chair in there, and uh, that's kind of odd. Yeah. <laughs> Why would you have a picture of your boss hanging in your office? Yeah, especially if it was like when he's a teenager. Yeah. Really weird. Yeah. So she decided she was just going to wait in his office till they got back. Yeah, not good at all. Yeah, she was going to wait, you know, until they got back, but neither one, they never showed up. So she went home, and that's when she flipped out. Yeah. She went upstairs and grabbed all his fancy fancy Dan suits. Yeah, his high-dollar suits. Yeah, took them outside, piled them up, set them on fire. Yep. Yeah, but that didn't seem to bother Dan. Well, he got home, he's like, well, I guess he just blowed it off, and there's like thousands of dollars worth of clothes burning him at Children were crying. They were flipping out because they were watching all this. And they didn't understand what was going on. And I'm sure she was letting out a, some colorful language. And but he come in and just kind of played it cool and kind of told her nothing's going on and you, you're overreacting and you're just I don't know, it's just your imagination. Mm-hmm. So, but I don't think she's buying it this time. No. <laughs> I think the photo on the wall and the, the birthday celebrations probably went a little farther than she was going to let let ride this time. Yep. On the last day of February 1984, Dan finally confessed his affair. Mm-hmm. But not as an apology to Betty, but only to explain 
as a reason why he was seeking a separation. Yep. And prior to this, the family had moved to a rental house in nearby town of La Hala while their coral reef home was being repaired. It was a large crack that had been detected in its foundation. Right. So they had to, they had to be worked on. Yeah, shortly after that, Dan moved back into the house while construction was still going on, but Betty and the kids remained in the, the rental house. Yeah. So he he needed some uh, some space. Yeah. We all know what that means. Mm-hmm. He needed Linda Coquina time. Yeah. Yeah, when Dan moved back into the Coral Reef home, he redecorated it to his own liking <clears throat> and not even talking to Betty about it. Yeah, he didn't even get her approval or anything. No, he just done what he wanted. He refused to spend time with the kids and did so only when Betty was, you know, pretty much putting a guilt trip on him right. or dropping him off at his doorstep. And by law, he was obligated to pay the family bills, but threw her only a small amount, you know, or allowance just so he continued to see Linda. Hmm. Yeah, he wasn't, he wasn't doing his fatherly duties to his kids or anything like that Dale no it seems he only had one thing on his mind yeah young 21 year old mm-hmm. and him 39 yep and I see where Betty could get pretty pissed off about oh, this oh yeah I would be too mm-hmm. I mean she's basically her whole the whole time she's known him she's done nothing but sacrifice her whole life for him yeah and now he's basically you're you're fat and old and boring and I think that's what he told her yeah you're fat and old and boring, and I'm just not having fun no more. And look what I got. Yeah, he got him a nose job, and he got him a young woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd be a little perturbed. Mm-hmm. And Betty's behavior was beginning to show signs of neurosis, and of that there was no doubt. She felt that the only world she knew and prepared and loved was slipping out from under her feet. Yep. Uh, the home, the family dinners, the backyard barbecues, the civics club. You know, everything was gone. Everything she'd busted her ass for to, to to gain all this time and build him up to make him what he was. And then he just dumped her. And she would claim that Dan was a master master manipulator. Oh, I'm sure. Of money, truth, people, courts, facts, and everything. Because, I mean, he had a lot of connections. He was a big-time lawyer. Yeah. And he, he knew how to work the system. Yep. He knew all the loop- loopholes. Mm-hmm. Legal and other, I'm assuming. You know, Dale, I, with all this, Betty was, I think she was shocked to the system. And it really affected her mindset. It affected her daily living. Oh, yeah. And she set out for vengeance. Yeah. Well, plus he's he's taking jabs everywhere he can. Mm-hmm. You know, like you said, he's manipulating everything she does. And he's got all the money, and he can do basically what he wants. Yep. And she's, here she is taking care of four kids working her butt off so she takes the kids over and drops them off yep one at a time i think yeah basically in her mind she's going to i'm going to show you how hard it is to to do all this and we'll see and then she thinks you know well she's getting back at him by doing that's what she's thinking she's thinking he's going to like oh this is really hard i I really do need you Mm -hmm. but she failed to realize that dan is a man of means and, and lots of money. And he can hire people to take care of his kids. Right, which is exactly what he did. Yep, he did. So now he's like, well, she's mad that I got the kids, so now I'm going to keep them. Yeah. So now here's another, something else, another blow. Now he's taking her kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's, ta- he's taking stabs at her every time he can. Yeah, taking her whole life from her. Yeah, and it wasn't long after this deal that Dan served divorce papers on Betty. Mm-hmm. And this is when she's about to boil over. Yeah. 
Betty's change came suddenly to all that were around her. Yep. She she became like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, or well, Mrs. Hyde. Well, she'd had enough, I think. Yep. She began to fight back with a vengeance. And one afternoon, um, having stopped at the Coral Reef house where Dan was living, you know, to visit her kids, yep. she spotted a homemade Boston cream pie. That was Dan's favorite. Yep. And it was sitting on the kitchen counter. And learning from the housekeeper that Linda had dropped it off, for Dan, Betty got the, the pie and carried it upstairs and spread the, the cake all over Dan's bed. Smeared it on his bed, on his clothes. Yep. Mm. And then that was when Dan had a restraining order issued yep. to keep Betty away from the house. Yeah, it was just a few days later, Dale, she came back to the house, even with a restraining order, and threw a wine bottle through a window. Yeah, she was, she was infuriated because of the order. So she went over there because she was ordered not to go over there. Yep. Through a wine bottle through the window, yeah. So yeah, she's a, she's totally out of control. Yeah, and they, they called the police, but they refused to do anything. They just estimated it, uh, it was just another domestic battle amongst the idle rich folks. Mm-hmm. So y'all y'all figured out, <laughs> which is kind of weird. But. but she was telling them, you know, she had no desire to leave her house, marriage, or children. And if he had been discreet, you know, he could have kept Linda, but he was trying to force. You know, that's what she was saying. She was trying to, he was trying to force me into divorcing him so he could always appear to be the good guy. Right. And he he maneuvered, he maneuvered us into a rental house and a rental car, both in his names and ended up with our house, with the equity. With everything. Yeah, he, he got everything. He's smart and doing it. Oh, yeah. He's working the system. He's working her. He's doing everything he's doing. And he's he's taking enough jabs at her to where he's making her look crazy when any time... It's like the old thing, you know, where you hit somebody, nobody ever sees the first strike. It's always when somebody hits back when you get caught or whatever. Mm-hmm. So all, all anything anybody sees is when she strikes back, and he's over acting like he's all innocent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like telling anybody she's crazy. Right. Yeah. And that's the way it appears. This was about February 1986, and, you know, Dan being such a well-connected lawyer, Betty could not find any kind of decent legal representation for the divorce. Right. You know, I yeah. guess he had, you know, all of his, his lawyer buddies, you know, wouldn't represent her. Right. Well, and, I mean, you know, it would be hard to, hard to go up against another lawyer. I mean, because they know everything. And then, like yeah. I said, they're all well-connected and they're all buddies. So, And everything seemed to come to a head in 1986, February of 86, when Dan convinced the judge to allow him to sell their former property without Betty's consent. He, he knew a loophole where he could sell it and she wouldn't even have to sign or anything. Right. So, yeah, he's good. Mm, that's just another thing. And this was when Betty found out that Dan had sold their home without her permission. She drove her Suburban to the front door of Dan's new house. Yep. Yeah, he had bought a, a new house in a, a real upscale um, community in San Diego and uh, <laughs> pissed her off. Yeah, but she drove that car. Right through the front door. Yep, and that's when Dan said that when he opened the door to pull Betty out, she reached for a large butcher knife under the seat, mm-hmm. and he restrained her. And he spent and she spent a few days in San Diego Mental Hospital. Yeah, they come took her away in straitjacket. Yeah, making her look even worse. But Dan got sole custody of the four children. Yep. Following the divorce, Betty's behavior got worse, mm-hmm. especially when Dan went public with his relationship with uh, Linda Colquina. And this is when Betty would choose obscene nicknames for Dan and Linda and she would use them in frequent messages on his answer machine yep. and this when Dan got pretty creative Dale 
he began to withhold money from her. Right. When yeah. Uh, yeah, he was giving her money, even though it wasn't uh, court ordered while all this was going on. So he didn't really just leave her with nothing. He didn't leave her high and dry. Right. I mean, he was giving her, I think, what, $9,000 a month or something like yeah, that? Yeah, he was. Yeah. So, I mean, so he's he's being a dick the whole time, but at least he was giving her money, you know, and well, $9,000 a month ain't shabby. No. Especially in 1986. No. But what he would do, he would hold $100 or withhold $100 for every obscene word Betty used. Yep. And he would withhold 250 for every time she set foot on his property. Right. And it goes up. Yep. And $500 for every time she entered his house without permission. And then uh, more for any time she took the kids without. I think that was $1,000. Yep. And then, what, one month, I think, she owed him $1,300? Yeah. My gracious. Yeah, so she was, yeah, she was pretty aggravated. Yeah, it just gets getting worse for her. Yep. Their divorce was finalized, and on April 22nd, 1989, Dan proposed to Linda. Yeah, the couple got married in their front yard on April 22nd, 1989. Yeah. Yeah, fun fact, the, uh, <laughs> some of his friends was trying to get Dan to wear a bulletproof vest yeah. during his wedding. Even Linda yeah. requested him to wear a bulletproof vest. But, you know, he's like, it's, nah, I'm not doing that. It's no. absurd. Oh, they thought Linda would show up. I mean, they, they thought uh, Betty would show up. Yeah, and try to kill him. And she did. She had bought a gun because she said that uh, since she was a, a single lady now, she needed one for protection. So they knew she had a gun. But now Dan did hire undercover security guards. Yes, he did. Mm-hmm. And nothing happened. Now on uh, November 1989, this was four days before Betty's 42nd birthday. Dan had threatened to file criminal contempt charges over Betty's offensive answering machine messages and uh, according to the newspaper there it might have been an act that betty set on the path to murder whenever the divorce became final the judge looked at the numbers and accepted you know all that money that dan was giving her when he didn't have to mm-hmm. basically they said that betty owed him seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars you know because of all those cash advances and then so ended up after everything was uh settled that she got uh $30,000 in cash. Early on November 5th, 1989, Betty re- reportedly drove to Dan and Linda's home near San Diego and let herself in the house with a, her daughter's key. I think Betty had took the key off her keychain. Yeah, she had taken it a while back. Said, yeah. This is two days before her birthday, her 42nd birthday. And she went in the front door and went upstairs to the bedroom. Yeah, and the uh, funny thing about it is said that uh, they had an alarm system on the house. But since she had driven her car through the front door, it had been dismantled and they hadn't got it repaired. Yeah. Mm, mistake. Yeah, but Betty used her thirty-eight caliber five-shot revolver. I guess this is like a little snub-nose revolver. That's weird. Yeah. But uh, she used her thirty-eight caliber five-shot revolver and shot Linda and Dan while they sleep. Yep. And according to the Los Angeles Times newspaper, one bullet hit a bedside table. And another uh, went into the wall. Uh, three bullets uh, struck Linda and Dan. Yep. One pierced Linda's neck and lodged in her brain. Mm. And another hit her in the chest. Yep. And then shot him in the chest. Yep. Killed her instantly. Yep. Uh, 
It actually perforated Dan's back, fracturing a rib and tearing through his right lung. Mm-hmm. He said he rolled off the bed, like trying to reach for the phone, and she grabbed the phone and took off. Mm-hmm. Left him to die. Yep. Unplugged the phone and took off. But uh, she later surrendered herself to police. Yeah, it was a couple of days later. I think. Yep. So they, you know, it was pretty much cut and dry. They didn't have any other suspects because, I mean, when she turned herself in, I mean, that was pretty much it. Yeah, she said she turned herself in and she wouldn't really talk to him about it. Mm-mm. On November 20th, 1990, after pleading not guilty to two counts of murder, Betty's first trial ends in a mistrial. Mm-hmm. And jurors say they were split by the defense's strategy of emphasizing Daniel Broderick's alleged mistreating of Betty and the children. Right. Well, I think they were going for uh, murder, too. Yep. And uh, they were trying to get him maybe for manslaughter. And the jurors were, couldn't decide. I think even one of the jurors had made a comment <laughs> how to kill him, too. Yeah. So, so much for uh, questioning the jurors, huh? Right. Yeah. Now, just a little over a year later, on December the 11th, 1991, at her second trial, Betty is found guilty on two counts of second-degree murder and is sentenced to 32 years to life in prison. Mm -hmm. But the second trial was pretty much the replay of the first trial, and the jury returned a verdict of two counts, like we said, of second-degree murder. But the way it broke down was Betty was sentenced to two consecutive terms of 15 years to life plus years for illegal use of a firearm. Yeah. And which is the maximum under the law. Well, it said that she had changed attorneys for the second um, second trial. And uh, they had actually went to the DA and asked for a plea deal that she would, you know, plea to this. And they, they told them, no, we were going to go for the jury. Yeah. But she has been incarcerated since the day she committed the murders. Yep. And Betty is serving her life sentence at the California Institute for Women in Chino, California. And she's been up for parole several times, but she's never really shown remorse for her killings. No. No, no, I think she said one time she was sorry, but I don't think she... She might have been sorry that she did, but she... I think think she's saying she's sorry it happened. Yeah. But not sorry that she committed the murders. You know, and there's a lot of people who, uh, I don't know, who look at this and say she is crazy and she done all this and poor old Dan, but if you ask me, he had it coming. I mean, you know, I ain't justifying killing the guy, but, man, he, he did her wrong. Oh, yeah. And the kid jabber and he, I mean, twist that knife, you know, not literally, but you know what I mean. Use the, know, use the law in his. Yeah, every way he could, yeah. and he recorded every conversation. He recorded everything. He had so much stuff on her, and she wasn't, she was too blind to see it far as being so mad but he knew how to play her and and he did yeah yeah and it's it's pretty sad really i mean for for the kids and for for the whole for the whole thing you know but i don't know a lot of people make her make her out to be a, a lunatic but i was uh, he, he made her what she was and for a lot of women you know this was a pretty big high profile case at the time and for a lot of women who experience you know these type of things she was a hero for a lot of women hmm. I just hate it. I mean, I hate it for her. I hate she had to experience all that and go through it. But, you know, murder wasn't the way out. Right. And even her kids were split. You know, two wanted her out and two wanted her to stay in. And it was just crazy. It's just they ripped this whole family up over 
but you know, it's just crazy. Yep. And I really hate him. Mm-hmm. But you know, it's I don't I don't know. Been he just didn't see who put him where he was, or he didn't give a shit one. Mm-hmm. He could have. He could have. He was pretty different. conceited from day one, though. You know, walking up with his little note, being I'm all this and, and almost a doctor. Yeah, and then went to get his degree, and then went, eh, this ain't gonna be good enough because I'm better than it. Yeah, you know. So I don't know. And she just did everything she could for him, and then he just turned on her. And Made her crazy. Mm-hmm. The way I see it. But anyway, Betty is still in prison, and it doesn't look like she's going to get out. No. She was up not long ago, I think, for parole, and it didn't, didn't let her out. No. And in a, in a, in a recent interview, um, she sounds rather upbeat. She says she stays busy in prison. Um, she's forced to program from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. where we have meals, showers, laundry, phone calls. So she even does some tutoring for the ladies in there who try to get their GED exam. Yeah. And she's very active there. She's on boards and committees, pretty much like she was at home. And she says she feels very well liked and respected. And she says, I don't live in fear. And in a twist of in her comment, at the end she says, Goddamn shame you can only feel safe here in prison. Nice society we have. It kind of sums it up, don't it? Yeah. And then it's because I guess that's the only place that she could get kind of what she had, you know, you know, respect and empowered a little bit. Cause, yeah. You know, she's teaching these girls and stuff. And, you know, this whole time she was married to Dan, I don't think she ever really, I don't think she was ever a happy woman. No, she didn't have time. Just yeah. that one little spot there when she said, you know, that when he first started his own practice and started making some money. You know, he had quit going out and drinking all the time and then coming home, you know, and telling her about his day and that kind of thing. And that was probably the only time. Yeah. Well, if you think about it, hell, she's been pregnant and sick and knocked up the whole time since they met. Yeah. I mean, all them kids, you know, the whole time and then busting her ass and working for him, mm-hmm. doing everything she could for him, giving him the big family and everything else. And then for what? Him find another woman. Mm-hmm. She was fat and ugly and boring. And boring. He wasn't having fun no more. Yep. I hate it for her, but we wanted to do this case and do her story and get it out there. Yeah. All right, you got any last words? Hmm. Any other comments on this? No, I think I'm, I'm commented out. All right. <laughs> what about you? I'm good. All right, then. All right, we're going to get out of here. Let's roll. We want everyone to be safe, be careful, and always be aware of your surroundings. Because the next episode... Could be about you. This is the Crack House Chronicles. Chronicles.